This is Marshall Weiss, editor and publisher of the Dayton Jewish Observer, and I'm happy to be with you again this week for the Jewish News Hour. This week, I'll start out reading an article from the Christian Science Monitor in Israeli War on Coronavirus, Arab Doctors Rush to the Front, by Joshua Mitnick, correspondent, Tel Aviv, Israel. Josh, for many years, also wrote for the forward. Yasmin Diab shuttles daily between self-quarantine at her home in the Arab village of Tamra and 24-hour shifts at Rambam Hospital in Haifa, the largest in northern Israel, where she was the first doctor on the coronavirus ward when it opened in March. Because of her work with coronavirus patients, Dr. Diab cannot have physical contact with her family. Her birthday recently came and went without a hug from her parents. The stresses of work made it harder to sleep. Still, the internal medicine resident doesn't regret the decision to volunteer for a job that puts her and her family at risk. I believe this is a mission, she says. We are on the front line of this war. With a stethoscope draped around her neck, Dr. Diab delivered a round of poised interviews to several Israeli news shows in the early weeks of the crisis. But she is just one of the tens of thousands of Arab health care professionals putting themselves on the line in Israel's battle against COVID-19. Though Arab doctors, nurses, and pharmacists have over the past decade become a familiar presence at Israeli hospitals and state-supported HMO clinics, the pandemic has shown Arab-Israeli citizens in a new light as essential foot soldiers and field commanders in the country's struggle against the virus. That elevated stature comes ironically at a particularly fraught moment in Arab-Jewish political relations. Even as Arab-Israelis, one-fifth of the population, have strengthened their paramilitary representation via a new alliance, the Joint List, they repeatedly have been the object of hostile campaign rhetoric from Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Leading up to the March 2nd election, Mr. Netanyahu's Likud party sponsored billboards that warned Israeli voters against an alternative government that would include or rely on the joint list, which the front prime minister and his allies portrayed as terrorism supporters. In an effort to push back on that sentiment, a new television commercial sponsored by Arab healthcare workers features a montage of portraits of Arab doctors and nurses. It's about time to acknowledge Arabs are also partners in the country, partners in destiny, partners in governance, the commercial concludes. Jewish-Israeli attitudes may be evolving. Increasingly, there are calls in Israel to shift budgets from military interests to the public health battle, and there are calls to recognize the Arab-Israeli contribution. This is the first time that Israel is conducting a war and that the Arab citizens have been recruited, says Aaron Singer, Arab affairs reporter for Khan, Israel's public broadcasting company, alluding to the fact that most Arab citizens aren't obliged to serve in the army. It's quite amazing that it happened so soon after the elections. The prominence of Arabs in Israel's health system reflects an effort by many to move into the mainstream, despite decades of discrimination and marginalization. Over the past two decades, as rising numbers of Arab youth have pursued higher education and sought to integrate among Israel's middle class, many have chosen to become health professionals. According to the official government data published in the Daily Haaretz newspaper, 
Arabs make up 17% of the country's doctors, 24% of the nurses, and 48% of the pharmacists. The system would collapse without the decisive contribution of Arab medical staff, said Rafael Walden, deputy director of the Sheba Medical Center, the country's largest hospital, in an interview with Israel's Channel 12 Television News. The pandemic has broadened recognition of the Arab-Israeli health care contribution to national security experts, noting that the fight to save lives would be fatally compromised without Arab professionals, a recent policy brief by the Institute for National Security Studies, a Tel Aviv University think tank led by former military top brass, urged the government to create a positive basis for full integration of Arabs in Israeli society and for an end to exclusionary and racist discourse and statements that call into question Arab loyalty. This is really an opportunity that's not to be missed, said Meyer Elran, an INSS fellow and former general who co-wrote the paper. It's very difficult to find a light in this tunnel, but there's more than a chance that this can make a difference. Still, for all the progress achieved by Arab medical professionals, Israel's health services are harder to access for the Arab population. Arab towns are located on average nearly twice as far from hospitals as Jewish towns, according to the Taub Center for Social Policy Studies. Early on in the pandemic, it became apparent that fewer coronavirus tests were being administered among Arabs and that informational material about COVID-19 wasn't even available in Arabic. As of April 16th, the health ministry reports that only about 459 of Israel's some 12,591 COVID-19 cases, or 3.6%, come from Arab towns. The Palestinian Authority reports another 81 cases in East Jerusalem. The underrepresentation stems from the initial emergence of the virus here among Jews who have limited interaction with Arabs, says Dr. Mohammed Khatib, data bank director of the Galilee Society, a center focusing on health policy among Arabs. Israeli coronavirus policy needs to be better fine-tuned to Arab communities and lacks input from Arab public health professionals, he says. Dr. Diab, who dons Bordeaux-colored scrubs worn by the staff on the Rambam Coronavirus Ward, estimates that about two-thirds of the doctors on the ward are Arab. She says she considers the staff, whether Arab or Jew, like a second family. Her parents, religious Muslims, worried about the risk of infection, but ultimately supported her decision to volunteer. They believe that God will do what is necessary, she says. In the end, they trust me. As for her Jewish patients, I always get smiles from them. They aren't insulted or surprised to have an Arab opposite them. I've never felt anyone treat me differently because I'm an Arab. While not unheard of, she says that's a rare phenomenon at the hospital. Dr. Diab says she has kept in touch with Ariel Grabois, a ballroom dance instructor who was one of the first patients on the ward. Released after recovering from the virus, Mr. Grabois describes the medical staff on the ward as dedicated and top-notch and says he hopes the pandemic prompts Israelis to look beyond identity politics. You have to put those things aside, he says. The virus doesn't distinguish between Arab and Jew. I hope this will make people look at things differently, less in terms of demographic sectors. Indeed, inside Rambam Hospital, the collegiality and collaboration among the Arab and Jewish staff is a marked contrast to the public atmosphere elsewhere in Israel, 
says Moger Kamaisi, the hospital's Arab-Israeli director of internal medicine, who oversees a ward of patients with COVID-19 symptoms. Arabs who make up much of the senior staff volunteered for the coronavirus work out of a sense of professional duty. They want to take an active role in the effort, says Dr. Kamaisi. It's true that Israeli politicians ignore us and the prime minister speaks against us. On the other hand, the doctors here do our work regardless, without expecting any favors. People should see that we're all in the same boat and that our contribution is critical, he says. But I fear that in another half year, everyone will forget and we will return to being second and third class citizens. Dr. Diab sounds a more hopeful note. Lately, more individual Israelis have reached out to her on social media to thank her for her work. They think that what I'm doing shouldn't be taken for granted. She says she's always tried to rise above the national differences in Israel and focus on individuals as humans instead of Arab or Jew. And while she says she isn't particularly interested in politics, it bothers her when she hears some insist that Israel is only a Jewish state. Maybe dealing with the coronavirus will change that. Ultimately, we live in the same country and we all need to be equal, she says. The fact is that we are now more equal because we are on the front lines of the corona battle and people are looking at us differently. I hope this isn't temporary. I hope it's the beginning and there will be equality between us. And next we'll jump over to the Times of Israel. And the first article, New York Yeshiva raises funds, distributes protective gear to local medical facilities. Great Neck, New York by Catherine J. Prince. As a yellow forklift deposited a pallet of N95 masks at the edge of a small parking lot, masked volunteers began filling every nook and cranny of a station wagon with boxes of protective gear. What could be mistaken for a staging ground for relief supplies after a devastating hurricane was instead the parking lot of Beit Medrash of Great Neck. It's here that Rabbi Eitan Rubin, the yeshiva's head supervises the delivery of desperately needed medical supplies to area hospitals. That such a relief effort was and is needed surprised Reuben. I wouldn't have thought it was possible for something like this to happen here, Reuben told the Times of Israel, speaking through a blue surgical mask. As much as we might want to blame government about the supply issues, I think we have to look at it from a bigger perspective. We need to focus on how we're working together and our strength in numbers. In less than an hour, the 20 volunteers working with Reuben would start dropping off supplies at 17 locations, including Maimonides Hospital in Brooklyn, Long Island Jewish Medical Center, and Mount Sinai, Brooklyn. They would also deliver supplies to local EMTs and nursing homes. Reuben got involved in this charity work in mid-March after receiving a call from Stephen Odzer, a business associate. Odzer, who lives in Nevada, distributes janitorial supplies through his company, BT Supplies West, Incorporated. At the time, Odzer had realized his inventory was dwindling and asked Reuben if he could help find investors who might buy more masks and hand sanitizer. He had 85 employees that he had promised not to lay off and clients who needed stock. Reuben said he'd help, but that he wanted to ensure supplies could be donated to New York hospitals which were being inundated with the first wave of COVID-19 patients. He's a rabbi. The way his brain works is he wanted to know how do we help people, Odzer told the Times of Israel via telephone. 
Odzer, who isn't new to charitable giving, gave Rubin an initial contribution of $100,000. Rubin then set up a GoFundMe page. With subsequent donations ranging from $36,000 to $75,000, Rubin has so far raised $403,322 of his $2 million goal. After 9-11, we took comfort knowing that people from all over cared for us, and so it doesn't surprise me the way people are pulling together, Rubin said. To date, Rubin and his volunteers have sourced tens of thousands of masks and bottles of hand sanitizer from Odzer for the cause. The most recent shipment of 50,000 masks and 80,000 bottles of hand sanitizer had arrived the previous night from China, where Odzer's company gets its supplies. Assisting Rubin were Beit Medrash of Great Neck's college-age students, Turo College of Osteopathic Medicine students, and a real estate agent. They were eager to help the state that tops both the nation and the world in reported COVID-19 cases and fatalities. As of April 17, there were a reported 14,636 deaths in the state, of which 11,477 were in New York City. There were 222,284 confirmed cases in the state and 123,146 in New York City. One of those cases was Ruben's father-in-law. Discharged from the hospital just before Passover, he's recovering at home. The rest of the Reuben family started self-isolating nearly two months ago. Meanwhile, in Nassau County on Long Island, where Reuben oversees his deliveries, there have been 1,109 reported deaths and 27,772 confirmed cases. Less than five miles from the staging ground, in the parking lot of LIJ Medical Center, is a refrigerated trailer that serves as a mobile morgue. It's an all-too-familiar site at hospitals across the state. But there was a glimmer of hope this week. For the first time, new hospitalizations for COVID-19 fell from 462 on April 10th to 383 people on April 11th, according to the New York City Health Department. Nevertheless, the hunt for supplies continues. It's a hunt that surprised third-year medical student Ben Traceman on hand to get out of the bait, uh, get a, to help out at Beit Midrash of Great Neck. After the Turo Medical College student was pulled from his rotation, he joined Behind Our Heroes, a group of fellow student volunteers that does everything from helping with childcare to delivering food and supplies to hospitals. Working in hospitals, we never thought about shortages. The resources were always available, Traceman said, speaking through a gray and white checkered cloth mask. This changes the way we think about public health and the importance of partnering with community groups. In the coming days, Ruben hopes to secure up to 40,000 isolation suits and gowns. We all have one purpose here, to help people, Ruben said. And next from the Times of Israel, U.S. far-right extremists are now calling social distancing a Nazi policy. Fringe activists are comparing governors fighting COVID-19 to Hitler. Jewish leaders fear the conspiratorial rhetoric will lead to violence against community by Eric Cortalesa, Washington. The coronavirus pandemic has caused hundreds of thousands of deaths worldwide. It has devastated the global economy, resulting in millions of job losses, and now American Jewish leaders fear it is being used as an instrument to spread another virus, anti-Semitism. 
rebelling against shelter-in-place directives to flatten the curve of COVID-19's infection rate, far-right extremists have increasingly compared the governors issuing the orders to Adolf Hitler in a bid to spark chaos and use the crisis to amplify their ideology, according to experts. On Wednesday, hundreds of demonstrators descended on Lansing, Michigan, to stand outside the state capitol and protest the governor's stay-at-home order. The virus has already killed nearly 2,000 Michigan residents and overwhelmed Detroit-area hospitals. Yet the move has elicited strong opposition, including from right-wing activists who made the bizarre and ahistorical claim that the orders were comparable to policies carried out by Nazis. One woman held a sign that said, Heil Whitmer, Whitmer, uh, referring to Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer, a Democrat. Others were waving Confederate flags and donning pro-Trump Make America Great Again hats. Similar rallies to end social distancing were held around the nation, including Ohio, as part of a coordinated campaign dubbed Operation Gridlock. Worse yet, on the same day, Authorities arrested and charged a man who allegedly attempted an arson attack at a Jewish nursing home near three Jewish temples, a Jewish day school, and a Jewish community center. This case highlights the very real threat posed by racially motivated violent extremists, said Joseph Bonabolonta, the FBI special agent in charge of the Boston division. The arrest came after the Anti-Defamation League found that extremists have been promulgating a conspiracy theory online that the coronavirus was created by a cabal of Jews. Anti-Semitism is this enduring scourge that shows up over and over again in history, where the Jews are to blame for everything, said Rabbi Jonah Pessner, who heads the Religious Action Center, the political arm of the reform movement. Here we go again. New research from the Western State Center, an Oregon-based nonprofit that studies and tracks extremism, has found that comparing anti-COVID policies to Nazi policies is an emerging trend. On Telegram, a secure messaging platform which is also used by white supremacists, users have linked Washington Governor Jay Inslee, Oregon Governor Kate Brown, Idaho Governor Brad Little, and Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer to the Nazi leader. On one Telegram channel, for instance, a photograph was circulating of a man at the Lansing rally holding a mannequin said to be Whitmer with a Hitler mustache and garbed in Nazi apparel. One of the strategies is to try to spread the idea that the U.S. is somehow instituting a form of martial law or authoritarian regime by responding to a pandemic, said Eric Ward, executive director of the Western States Center. It is similar rhetoric that some gun rights activists use to oppose regulation of weapons in the United States, Ward added. We have also seen that type of rhetoric with seatbelt laws. There's a strain within the authoritarian right to respond to government intervention, ironically through the idea that federal government is engaging in authoritarian action. Many of these individuals, the nonprofit has found, are supporters of U.S. President Donald Trump, and are embracing his push to have the economy reopened by May 1st, which public health officials, including those in his own administration, have warned against as premature. The pandemic comes amid the 2020 presidential race, and some pundits have speculated that Trump's rush to reopen the economy is fueled by his desire to improve his election chances. 
In an interview with the Times of Israel, the hate violence expert Ward said there wasn't enough evidence yet to determine whether right-wing ideologues have successfully used the coronavirus crisis to attract more people to their cause, but that there were other causes of concern. I think there's a bigger danger than them being able to expand their base, Ward said. They're sowing more fear and tension into the American public. They've been able to find lots of oxygen to try to deflect responsibility away from the Trump administration. Jewish leaders who have lived through an increase in anti-Semitic incidents over the last several years, including the deadly attacks at synagogues in Pittsburgh and Poway, fear the possibility of extremist rhetoric escalating even further. It incites violence and genocidal tendencies targeting the Jews and others who are scapegoats when there is suffering, Pessner told the Times of Israel. We've seen this before. Indeed, the Jews were blamed for the Black Plague, leading to scores of persecutions and massacres of Jewish communities from 1348 to 1351. Having spent the days after the Tree of Life massacre with the Jewish community in Pittsburgh, I'm always worried, Pesner added. Blaming Jews leads to murdering Jews and other minorities. For Hallie Sofer, executive director of the Jewish Democratic Council of America, the Michigan rally was personal. She was on her computer Wednesday working from home when she came across a picture on social media of the woman holding the Heil Whitmer sign. I thought, oh my God, that must just be some crazy right-wing outlier, she said. But then I looked closer and realized that this was an organized protest, that there were many people there, and that it was in my hometown. Sofer grew up 10 minutes from the Capitol building in Lansing where the protest was held. She was born in Sparrow Hospital less than a mile down the road. Demonstrators caused, caused a massive traffic, uh, massive traffic jam Wednesday and the long line of cars blocked off the hospital's front entrance. The images of the rally, she said, haunt her. The men and women holding machine guns and waving Confederate flags wearing Make America Great Again hats and Nazi insignia. They were not wearing masks or gloves. Clearly a demonstration against social distancing, Soifer told the Times of Israel, the confluence of so much danger all coming together like a storm. It was shocking to see that those with such a hateful agenda and ideology would actually be located in one's hometown. And next from the Associated Press, police find 19 bodies of coronavirus victims at New Jersey nursing homes. An extraordinary number of coronavirus-related deaths overwhelmed a nursing home in northern New Jersey, where police found uh, 18 bodies in what the governor called a makeshift morgue on two consecutive days earlier this week. Police got an anonymous tip Monday that a body was being stored outside the home, Andover Township Police Chief Eric Danielson said Thursday. When police arrived, he said the body wasn't where the tipster had said it was, but they found 13 bodies inside. They were removed Monday night and taken to a hospital in a refrigerated truck. The New Jersey Herald first reported finding the bodies, the finding of the bodies, which followed the discovery of five bodies at the home Sunday after complaints from staff and family members to law enforcement. The facility is owned, co-owned by Chaim Mutti Scheinbaum, whose Lakewood, New Jersey-based Alliance Healthcare also manages other nursing homes across the state. 19 of the home's 35 residents who have died since March 30th had the coronavirus that causes COVID-19, Health Commissioner Judy Parashili said. 
Of the more than 500 residents listed as of April 15th, 103 had tested positive and more than 100 had symptoms. 52 staff members also showed symptoms. Local health officials visited early Sunday after the state health department received word the facility needed body bags, Persichilli said. On Tuesday, they reported that the facility was understaffed. The facility was clearly overwhelmed and probably short-staffed, Danielson told CNN. Family said they received only form letters about relatives being sick. On one case, the letter arrived after the person had died, the New York Jersey Herald reported. In an email Thursday, Scheinbaum argued that staffing was adequate, but that an extraordinary number of deaths over the weekend had overwhelmed the facility's resources. The backup and after-hours holiday weekend issues, plus more-than-average deaths, contributed to the presence of more deceased than normal in the facility holding room, Scheinbaum wrote. The area used to house deceased residents until they can be picked up by a funeral home, has a normal capacity of four with a maximum of 12, Scheinbaum wrote. In a statement posted on Andover Police Facebook page, Scheinbaum said the morgue never had more than 15 present on Monday. Staffing at the facility is solid with 12 nurses, one more than normal, and 39 nursing assistants, one fewer than normal, Scheinbaum wrote. Police released a photo of a box truck parked outside the home that was being used to store the bodies after a hazmat team removed them. U.S. Representative Josh Gottheimer, a Democrat whose district covers Andover Township, said he was notified over the weekend that the facility was desperate for body bags. He said he had received calls and email, uh, emails from concerned relatives. One of my concerns is that these facilities are not communicating in real time, he said. That's what I've been hearing from facilities. That's outrageous. It's completely unacceptable that they have to call me for updates. Governor Phil Murphy said at a news briefing Thursday that several individuals had died at the Andover Nursing Home and that he has asked the state attorney general to look into what happened there, as well as at any other nursing homes that have had many deaths. The Democratic governor said he was outraged that bodies of the dead were allowed to pile up in a makeshift morgue at that facility. New Jerseyans living in our long-term care facilities deserve to be cared for with respect, compassion, and dignity. The coronavirus has spread quickly through nursing homes around the country, leading to pressure on federal health officials to publicly track COVID-19 infections and deaths. In New Jersey, 471 residents of long-term care facilities have died through Wednesday, and 358 of the state's 375 facilities have reported positive cases, according to state health officials. Since last month, the state has banned visitation, ordered universal masking, and required that all facilities notify residents, family, and staff of any outbreaks. Persichilli said this week that 123 long-term care facilities have been prohibited from admitting patients because they haven't demonstrated they can effectively segregate COVID-19 infected residents from those who aren't infected. In the past week, Persicelli said the state had distributed more than 100,000 N95 masks, nearly 700,000 surgical masks, 7,000 face shields, and more than 700,000 gloves to long-term facilities. COVID-19 has killed more than 32,000 people across the United States, according to Johns Hopkins University, with New Jersey the worst-hit state 
after New York. And next from the Times of Israel, let us go back into parks, forests. Experts say it's essential for public health. Association of Public Health Officials and Society for Protection of Nature issued joint plea. Say time in green spaces reduces depression, lowers blood pressure, speeds recovery by Sue Sorkis. Public health physicians and environmental advocates issued a joint call Thursday for restrictions on going out into nature and open spaces to be lifted as soon as possible, saying this is essential for the health of mind and body and is an inseparable part of building our national strength. The Israel Association of Public Health Officials and the Society for the Protection of Nature in Israel said in a letter to the Prime Minister and the Health and Education Ministers that the health benefits of spending time outdoors in nature or in parks was proven and took on additional importance after the long period during which Israelis have been in lockdown at home because of the coronavirus. Research proves that spending time in green spaces contributes to a reduction in depression, a drop in blood pressure, and speedier recovery from illness, the statement added. On condition that social distancing was maintained, the risk of infection from coronavirus was negligible, while the health benefits were enormous, Professor Haggai Levin, chairman of the IAPHO, said. Iris Hahn, CEO of the SPNI, said when talk begins of relaxing the restrictions, one of the essential steps to take is to allow activity in open spaces. Other countries that have imposed lockdowns have enabled people to go outdoors, she wrote, and there were ways to supervise the numbers of people and the distance they maintain between one another, she said. The government is set to announce a limited reduction of coronavirus restrictions in the coming days. National parks and nature reserves have been closed for around a month, and at present all Israelis other than those deemed essential workers are restricted to win within 100 meters of their homes, allowed only to shop for essential items such as food and drugs. Between Tuesday evening and Thursday morning, the nation was in lockdown for the end of the Passover holiday and the Mimuna festival. Inner-city travel was banned and bakeries were shuttered until Thursday morning to stem the spread of the pandemic. And next from the Times of Israel, virus rules ignored at Drew's funeral, ultra-Orthodox circumcision. Many dozens attend ceremony in northern town of Isfia despite national orders against public gatherings. 200 at Brit Milah event in Jerusalem by Times of Israel staff. Dozens of people attended a funeral in the northern Israeli Druze town of Isvia on Wednesday, violating public health orders aimed at curbing an outbreak of the deadly coronavirus in the country, Channel 12 News reported. And in Jerusalem, police said they had broken up a circumcision event in an ultra-Orthodox neighborhood attended by over 200 people. Several participants assaulted police officers and hurled eggs at them, officials said. One was arrested for attacking police and four fines handed out for breaking public health orders, the Israel Hayom Daily reported. Under current lockdown orders against public gatherings, Israel allows up to 20 people to attend a funeral, provided they maintain a distance of at least two meters, that's six and a half feet, between each other. Ritual circumcisions may be attended by up to 10 people. Though the majority of ultra-Orthodox Israelis are now following government restrictions, which have uh, prohibited all public gatherings, 
and ordered many public institutions, including synagogues, to shut to prevent the spread of coronavirus. Many initially flouted the new regulations, holding mass weddings and funerals while ignoring social distancing rules. And some have responded violently to police attempts to enforce the law. The incident in Isfia, a predominantly Druze town, came amid concerns that the highly contagious virus was gaining momentum in some Arab-Israeli communities. In a video from the event, many dozens of people can be seen joining the procession for the burial of a local woman. Though the participants were wearing face masks, they were not seen maintaining social distancing. There were no police seen at the funeral or attempting to enforce restrictions, according to the report. A source described as familiar with daily life in northern Arab communities told the channel that the event was a symptom of the general lack of police enforcement in Arab communities. There have also been complaints of insufficient access to testing in some areas with large Arab populations, which the health ministry has tried to address by opening mobile test sites. On Wednesday, the health ministry warned of a coronavirus outbreak centered on the northern Arab town of Deir al-Assad, while its mayor said it could be put on lockdown. The ministry said the number of infections in the town of over 12,000 people was very high jumping from 5 to 23 within a day. There were another eight cases in total in the nearby towns of Naf, Bina, and Maj al-Krum. Besides the 31 total infections in the area, the ministry warned there were hundreds more people who were potentially exposed to the virus. As of Tuesday, the two Arab communities with the highest infection rates were Jizr al-Zarqa and Dabouria, which last week closed roads connecting to neighboring communities to prevent the virus from spreading further. Police have been deployed to enforce lockdown orders in many areas of the country, which are largely being adhered to. Rabbi Eliyahu Bakshi Doran, the former Sephardic chief rabbi of Israel, who died earlier in the week due to complications from the coronavirus, was laid to rest Monday with only a handful of people attending rather than the massive funeral generally reserved for rabbis of his standing. And next to the Times of Israel, U.S. alerted Israel, NATO, to disease outbreak in China in November, according to report. White House was reportedly not interested in the intel, but it was passed on to NATO, IDF. When it reached Israel's health ministry, nothing was done by Times of Israel staff. U.S. intelligence agencies alerted Israel to the coronavirus outbreak in China already in November, Israeli television reported Thursday. According to Channel 12 News, the U.S. intelligence community became aware of the emerging disease in Wuhan in the second week of that month and drew up a classified document. Information on the disease outbreak was not in the public domain at that stage and was only apparently uh, known to the Chinese government. U.S. intelligence informed the Trump administration, which did not deem it of interest, but the report said the Americans also decided to update. The network said Israeli military officials later in November discussed the possibility of the spread of the virus to the region and how it would affect Israel and neighboring countries. The intelligence also reached Israel's decision-makers and the health ministry, where Nothing was done, according to the report. Last week, ABC News reported that U.S. intelligence officials were warning about the coronavirus in a report 
prepared in December by the American Military's National Center for Medical Intelligence. It was unclear if that was the same report that was said to have been shared with Israel. In its first major step to prevent the spread of the coronavirus, Israel announced on January 30th it was barring all flights from China 10 days after Chinese leader uh, Xi Jinping issued his first public comments on the virus. And Asians, the Asian country's top epidemiologist said for the first time it could be spread from person to person. An Associated Press report on Wednesday said Xi's warning came seven days after Chinese officials secretly determined that they were facing a uh, likely pandemic, potentially costing China and other countries valuable time to prepare for the outbreak. The doctors in Wuhan, the city at the center of the outbreak in China, are reported to have first tried to warn about the virus in December but were censored. The Chinese government had repeatedly denied suppressing information in the early days, saying it immediately reported the outbreak to the World Health Organization. And next from the Times of Israel, 2,000 protest erosion of democracy under Netanyahu. Demonstrators at Black Flag Rally in Tel Aviv keep two meters distance in line with virus regulations. Organizers said some 2,000 demonstrators gathered Thursday evening at Habima Square in Tel Aviv to protest what they describe as the erosion of Israeli democracy under Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's leadership amid the coronavirus pandemic. The demonstrators, who said they were keeping two meters distance between one another in accordance with social distancing rules, waved black flags as they have done on previous occasions over the past month. The citizens of Israel are proving today that Israeli democracy refuses to be subjected to a coup under the pretext of the coronavirus, an organizer said. We won't back a government whose prime minister is accused of bribery, fraud, and breach of trust. We cannot permit a situation in which that same accused man has a role in appointing investigators, prosecutors, and judges in the state of Israel. Among the demonstrators was Meretz Party leader Nitzan Harwitz, who tweeted a photo of himself among the socially distancing crowd wearing a face mask. Yair Netanyahu, the prime minister's son, raised eyebrows by responding to Harwitz's tweet with an apparent wish for left-wingers to die of COVID-19. I hope the elderly who die following this protest will only be from your camp, he wrote, eliciting a torrent of criticism. But he refused to back down, writing in a follow-up comment that for two months it has been thoroughly explained to everyone in the country that mass gatherings will lead to mass infections and necessarily the death of vulnerable infected people. So statistically, there is a good chance that the left-wing protesters tonight caused the deaths of elderly people. I prefer them not to be ours. The younger Netanyahu ended up deleting both tweets after the Prime Minister himself condemned the posts. A statement from the Prime Minister's office said he roundly rejects the remarks and that there are no political camps in the struggle against the coronavirus, and there shouldn't be. The Black Flag movement's name has come from demonstrators pinning black flags to their vehicles to symbolize what they believe is a danger to Israel's democracy posed by Netanyahu's rule. The demonstrators have often kept to their cars in order to uphold social distancing directives aimed at preventing the spread of coronavirus. On Monday, dozens of black flag protesters demonstrated next to the home of blue and white MK Gabi Ashkenazi, 
due to party leader Benny Gantz's willingness to form a unity government and serve under Netanyahu. The protest leaders said police handed five of them fines for refusing to disperse the banned gathering. They said the fines ranged from uh, NIS 475 to 5,000, that would be 133 to 1,400 American dollars, and vowed not to pay them, accusing police of trying to suppress the protest with huge fines. Ashkenazi himself later urged authorities to consider canceling the police fines. Even during these days, we must guarantee freedom of speech and the right to protest, provided that the protesters adhere to the health ministry's guidelines, he said in a tweet. And next from the Times of Israel, top Israeli basketball prospect Denny Avdija declares for NBA draft by Alexander Fulbright. Top Israeli basketball prospect Denny Avdija on Thursday announced he was entering the upcoming NBA draft. Avdija, 19, is a 6'9 forward for Maccabee Tel Aviv and also plays on the Israeli men's national team. He is considered a potential top five pick in the 2020 draft, which is scheduled for June 25th, but could be delayed due to the coronavirus pandemic. Despite the difficult reality that we're currently in, dreams and hopes can come true. I wish to inform you that I decided to realize a dream and another challenge in my basketball career. I'm proud and excited to declare I'll be joining the upcoming draft, Abdija said in a Hebrew language video. He added, I'm embarking on a new journey in which I intend to represent the state of Israel, my family, and myself with honor. Abdija had a strong performance during FIBA U20 European Championship last year, in which he was named the most valuable player of the tournament and led the Israeli youth team to gold. His father, Zufer Abdija, played for the Yugoslavian national team and later moved to Israel, where he played professionally for a number of Israeli clubs. And next from JTA, Prince of Egypt, wicked composer Stephen Schwartz says inspired fans are his greatest reward. Discussing the recent stage adaptation of the Disney Exodus classic, his career and Jewish roots, Stephen Schwartz says he didn't really see it when Spielberg first tapped him by Steve North. JTA. The Prince of Egypt is having another moment in the desert sun. The 1998 animated film on Moses and the Exodus story has been turned into a recent musical in London. It's streaming on Hulu for viewers in the United States, and in the wake of the coronavirus crisis, the original movie's music is getting online love from fans who are being soothed by soundtrack tunes such as When You Believe, which won an Oscar. Hearing this amid the COVID-19 virus situation just comforts me, one listener wrote on the song's YouTube page. You made me cry from joy. This is what we need to hear right now. Italy thanks you, another comment read. The song fills my heart so deeply in these times and gives me strength, a young man said. The song's prolific composer and lyricist, Stephen Schwartz, was moved by the remarks. He's written music for a range of other blockbusters, from Wicked to Pocahontas. This is the most gratifying thing a writer can hear, he said. We write to communicate, to share our feelings and philosophies with the world. A lot of times you put stuff out there and don't know how it's being received, so if people have found something inspiring or comforting, there's just no greater gift a writer can ask for. For Prince of Egypt, the musical, Schwartz, over the past five years, has written ten new songs that tell the Passover story. 
The play was at the beginning of a West End run when the pandemic forced it and all other shows to close for now. An original cast recording of the songs was released shortly before Passover on Ghostlight Records. Schwartz, 72, said he's been very aware of the dramatic implications of the Exodus saga since early childhood. Born in New York City, he and his sister were raised on suburban Long Island by their businessman father, Stanley, who will turn 100 in June, and their mother, Sheila, a teacher who's now 95. We always celebrated Passover and continue to with my parents every year, Schwartz said. When my children, Scott and Jessica, were young, my father wanted to make the story more interesting for them, so he invented two characters named Charlie and Susie who were stand-ins for them. They appeared in the Passover story, assisting Moses, and that went on for six or seven years when they were little. Schwartz has been creating memorable music since his college days. While still in his early 20s, he had two massive hits on Broadway, Godspell and Pippin, which ran for nearly five years and 2,000 performances. He worked consistently throughout the 70s and 80s, creating lyrics and or music for various productions, including rags about Jewish immigrants and the schmata business, also known as the garment industry. By the 1990s, Schwartz was collaborating with Alan Menken on scores for Disney movies such as Pocahontas, which, for which he received two Academy Awards, and The Hunchback of Notre Dame. In 1998, he wrote five songs for The Prince of Egypt, the first animated feature produced by Steven Spielberg and Jeffrey Katzenberg's DreamWorks Studios. I have to say, Richard uh, Schwartz says, when they first approached me about doing an animated feature, I didn't really see it until Spielberg said the idea he had was to emphasize the relationship between the two adoptive brothers, Moses and Ramses, who became Pharaoh. That really appealed to me because I like to do stories where real human relationships are caught up in big events. Schwartz's 1991 musical, Children of Eden, was actually his original interpretation of the book of Genesis. While it didn't run on Broadway, it has become one of the most frequently licensed pieces of theater around the world. He also wrote the lyrics to the 2012 choral piece, the Hanukkah song, We Are the Lights. A friend of mine was directing a performance of Christmas songs at the Lincoln Center Tree Lighting and wanted to do a Hanukkah song as well, he said. I was very pleased to get an opportunity to contribute a Hanukkah song because I feel there aren't enough of them. Schwartz's place in the pantheon of legendary Broadway and film composers was well established before the 21st century, but he's perhaps best known for Wicked. Some 60 million theatergoers worldwide have seen the clever Broadway musical take on The Wizard of Oz, which has grossed $5 billion. He often hears from fans who tell him the show's song, Defying Gravity, has changed their lives. All of us who worked on Wicked are astonished by what's happened, Schwartz said. Obviously, we were passionate about the idea and tried to do the best show we possibly could, but for it to have become such a cultural phenomenon was completely beyond our expectations. Schwartz's parents and grandparents were all born in America, but his Jewish roots date back to the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and many ancestors were from Vienna as well. While working in the Austrian capital, with the help of the Jewish Museum there, he found records about relatives from both sides. Now Schwartz is looking forward to the expected release next year of the film version of Rick Wicked and the presumed reopening in London of the Prince of Egypt, of which he's quite proud. It was a very exciting experience theatrically, extremely imaginative, with athletic choreography, he said. 
And next, an op-ed from the Times of Israel from its publisher, David Horowitz. Tactics lousy, party broken, and deal elusive, Gantz plays into Netanyahu's hands. Six and a half weeks after he did well enough in the elections to be endorsed as prime minister by a majority of members of Knesset, and a month after President Ruben, Ruvain Rivlin invited him to form the next government, Benny Gantz's march toward the edge of Israel's political cliff gathered fresh momentum on Thursday. Opting out of the uphill and quite possibly unwinnable battle to muster a viable majority himself, Gantz instead began a journey toward oblivion four weeks ago by announcing that he was abandoning his Blue and White Party's sole reason for being, its pledge to voters that it would work to oust Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, whom Gantz and his key colleagues Yair Lapid and Moshe Alon had spent the past year assuring the Israeli public was dictatorial, unscrupulous, corrupt, and dangerous. Declaring that a combination of the coronavirus and the threat to Israeli democracy posed by Netanyahu and his colleagues required a typical behavior, Gantz indicated on, no, on March 26th that he now intended to join forces with that self-same Netanyahu, whose parliamentary speaker, Likud M.K. Yuli Edelstein, had just made Israeli political history by blithely defying a high court of justice ruling to put his job up for a vote. Appalled at what they termed Gantz's capitulating crawl toward Netanyahu and accusing him of stealing the votes of their electorate, Lapid and Ya'alon severed their alliance with Gantz and headed off toward the opposition to try to pick up the pieces and challenge Netanyahu another day. Gantz, meanwhile, himself elected Knesset Speaker, hoping that job would give him some sway over Netanyahu in the coalition negotiations that would follow. Gantz's tactics, however well-intentioned, were controversial, muddy, and inept. Controversial, to put it mildly, because he had run for election and won votes on the clear, relentlessly repeated promise that he would not sit in government with Netanyahu so long as the Likud leader was under indictment on corruption charges. Of course, politicians routinely abandon core positions. It is less common for them to abandon their own stated reason for entering politics in the first place, and the only position around which their entire political party coalesced. Netanyahu's trial was supposed to have begun on March 17th, but his justice minister closed most of the courts with the outbreak of the pandemic, and it has now been postponed to May at the earliest. Netanyahu denies the charges and claims he is the victim of an attempted political coup invoking, uh, involving the opposition, the media, the police, and the state prosecution. Muddy, because if he genuinely felt the coronavirus crisis, Gantz could have returned the mandate to Rivlin and announced in an act of principled good citizenship that Blue and White would back the transitional Netanyahu government and support the necessary legislation to push off new elections for as long as the virus battle required. At the same time, Gantz could have promised to block legislation long mooted by Netanyahu and his allies to curb the powers of the High Court and to present unilateral annexation of West Bank territory. Inept because his abandonment of his party's sole unifying principle was guaranteed to lead to the collapse of his alliance with Lapid and Ya'alon, thus depriving him of the political weight to negotiate 
with the immeasurably more experienced Netanyahu from a position of strength. Gantz may well have become convinced that Israel must have stable government at this moment of crisis, but he knew he would be negotiating on the platform of that government with a prime minister who has silkily outmaneuvered a series of partners and would-be partners over the years, and that he would thus need every ounce of leverage he could muster in their dealings. Days into the talks, he was already wearily said to be telling his diminished circle of colleagues that he wouldn't be sure Netanyahu would honor any rotation agreement the two might sign, and that if this gambit marked his political end, he would have at least consoled himself that he had been acting for the good of the country. Thoroughly, predictably on Thursday, therefore, Gantz's deadline to form a government, the mandate he had chosen not to exercise, expired. Thoroughly, predictably, the self-weakened Gantz had proved unable to finalize a coalition agreement with Netanyahu. And thoroughly, predictably, for all Gantz's and Netanyahu's near-daily talk about the current emergency situation in Israel, with the virus confining most Israelis to their homes, concerns about high levels of contagion in many ultra-Orthodox areas and possibly parts of the Arab sector too, and unemployment at over 25% and rising, the talks were not deadlocked over anything related to the pandemic. They were rather ostensibly stalled over Netanyahu's insistence on legislation to prevent the high court from disqualifying him as prime minister because of the indictments against him at any stage of the next government's lifespan, either at the start, when he would begin another 18-month stint as prime minister under the unsealed deal, or at any period during those first 18 months where the court to issue a belated ruling or after 18 months when he would be scheduled to hand over the reins of power to Gantz to become a mere acting prime minister whom the court might then deem would need to step down. I say ostensibly because, for all we know, Netanyahu may have decided from the get-go to simply string Gantz along until his mandate expired. With Rivlin having formally informed the Knesset Thursday morning that neither Gantz nor Netanyahu currently has the votes necessary to form a government, MKs now have 21 days to try again to agree on a prime minister a majority of them can get behind. With the expiration of his prime ministerial mandate, his already negligible leverage now all but disappeared, Gantz has thus managed in the space of six and a half weeks to transform himself from the party leader charged with building a coalition into the compromised head of a far smaller party and a mere irritant to the incumbent. He could yet threaten or even try to push through legislation as Knesset Speaker to disqualify Netanyahu as Prime Minister, but seems to have neither the will nor the support for a move of such dubious democratic legitimacy. It would also go against everything he has said over the past month about the urgent imperative for stable government to tackle the coronavirus. Decision-making freedom now overwhelmingly reverts to Netanyahu, who has three reasonable paths to retaining power and barring judicial intervention, no real prospect of losing it. Flying high in the polls, as the man in our living room most nights telling us how he's handling the pandemic and what limitations he is imposing or easing on our lives, the Prime Minister can first afford to contemplate a slide toward yet fourth elections with relative equanimity. 
even the rising joblessness and the status of the pandemic crisis four months from now when such elections would be held would render the electorate less satisfied with him Gantz's maneuvering means Israel no longer has a substantial credible opposition second Netanyahu can bide his time and see if Gantz capitulates entirely to his terms and joins a coalition in which blue and white would be a marginal partner with no real influence to be ditched at the prime minister's convenience long before the due date for rotation in fall 2021. Or third, Netanyahu can intensify the efforts he is already making to win over two or more defectors from the blue and white and or labor camps. He currently heads a block of 59 members of Knesset. He only needs two more to give him a Knesset majority. As of Thursday, many members of these parties are contemplating a descent into elections in which they will lose their seats. Netanyahu can argue that he is doing everything in his power to avoid yet another resort to elections for what would be the fourth time in 16 months, and that it is the principal thing, a genuine national interest, to help him in that endeavor by joining his government. I put the word defectors in quotes above because Gantz, after all, has blazed the trail for members of his own shattered blue and white alliance to potentially follow. If their own party leader was ready to sit with their nemesis Netanyahu, they might not unreasonably conclude, why shouldn't they? And next, some news briefs from JTA. The Sacramento Bee apologized for running a two-page ad that the California Daily said contained anti-Semitic language. The ad appeared April 10th and 12th, Good Friday and Easter Sunday, and featured a poem signed by a person named Robert Forrest, the Jewish News of Northern California reported. The religious folks who ran the show didn't like him, Jesus, stealing their thunder and putting the sheep in the gnome. So they watched and waited, hatching evil schemes unabated, looking to kill the man who brought God's love, planning to slaughter the holy man they hated, the poem read. It prompted many complaints from Jews and others, the Jewish paper reported. On April 14th, the Bee's editor and president, Lauren Gustus, wrote an apology ad with anti-Semitic language is unacceptable. In her 10-paragraph item, Gustus wrote that the ad celebrating Easter included anti-Semitic language. We deeply regret publishing it. She said the language was offensive and unacceptable, a violation of our principles as a news organization, and did not meet our standards as a member of your community. Gustus said the Bee will make a contribution to Sacramento's Unity Center, a pro-diversity institution that is housed inside the California Museum that matches the cost of Frost's ad. The paper will not accept further ads from Frost, she said, and will be improving its review process for ads to prevent a recurrence. Well, that's all the time we have this week. Thanks for listening.